Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. I am your host, as always, Tyler Cobble, and I'm very excited about our discussion today uh, with Randy Blankstein. He is the godfather of investing in triple net leases. He actually got started, uh, I believe, back in the 90s. We'll dive into that here in a second. But over the past couple of months, we've been bringing you guys more content on investing in triple net properties. And it seems from the feedback that we've gotten, this is a, a growing sector, especially post-COVID, uh, that everybody is very interested in and wants to be investing in. And so we figured, why not have the man, the myth, the legend himself come on and talk about single tenant net investments and triple net investments in general. So Randy, that was a very brief background, but thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast, Tyler. I'm a, I'm a fan and started to listen to it recently. So happy to be here today. And uh, thank you. Yes. I mean, your introduction, why nice aged me a little bit. Um, and I, did start <laughs> it, I did start in 1991 in the industry, um, right out of college and worked for um, a firm that since got bought twice and is now Cushman and Wakefield. But what I did was run the Midwest portfolio for AT&T with their service vehicles and trucks and, um, you know, go at the end of the day. And so that's kind of how I want to manage this portfolio. It was all kind of single tenant properties. And a lot of them we had leases on, a lot of them short term. So we had to buy a lot of them to, to not get kicked out. And, you know, they didn't want to really own this stuff long term. So we turned around put long-term leases on it and start it in the sale leaseback market. You know, there wasn't really a net lease market at the time or net lease conferences or net lease REITs. It was just kind of single right. tenant properties that you own, passive investments. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a sleepy segment that hadn't really been, you know, an industry like it is today. But nonetheless, the, the principles are the same, which is, you know, this is passive income for people that want to invest in real estate without a lot of hands-on, not, not necessarily um, a ton of experience necessary to make the decisions, yes, but to own them, no. Um, you know, you don't need a property management company for the most part. You're really just collecting checks at the end of the day. You know, you have a long-term lease with the tenant. Most people do. And, you know, your goal is to renew them at the end of the lease term and collect the cash flow during that time. So, you know, they, they've kind of held steady during the years. And, you know, I've progressed from, um, you know, doing it with another firm. And then, you know, I naively at 26 decided I knew what I was doing, which was not true. And... <laughs> Um, started my own company called the Boulder Group. And, you know, we've been doing it, I've been doing it ever since 1997. You know, it's industry's grown, we've grown with it. Still a boutique based in Chicago, you know, focused on net lease sales nationwide. But, um, you know, we've kind of grown with the industry and we've done everything from, you know, one-off dollar generals for a few hundred thousand dollars to um, uh, Darden sale leaseback Olive Garden portfolio uh, for 278 million. So there's a, a big discrepancy within the sector. I'm sure you're, you're you know, podcast base is more focused on some of the smaller transactions, which is fine. Again, a great way to get into it. And there's lots of transactions in the, you know, 800,000 to $2 million range, which is really the kind of entry level point in this sector, um, which can get you in for a few hundred thousand dollars from people, you know, moving from multifamily, other things. Um, you know, there's lots of tenants from, you know, Dollar General to Sherwin Williams to a lot of the QSR fast food places that are all, you know, under $2 million investments, which you again can get into for maybe four or 500,000. Why, why that's not nothing, it's smaller in the commercial real estate realm. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely attainable. I love that. I didn't realize that you started the Boulder Group when you were 26. I actually started my company, the Cobble Group, when I was 25 or 26 as well, thinking the same thing. I mean, hey, I've been doing this for a while. I know what I'm doing now. Let's go do it. And uh, the first couple of years, it was a lot of learning. That No, I didn't really know what I was doing, um, which is well, that's, that's really funny. So how did you did you know that you were you wanted to get into commercial real estate? I mean, the thing that we hear all the time is it's such a difficult industry to get into. There's, you know, nobody's hiring. It's incredibly competitive. I mean, what was your kind of track in there? Um, you know, I knew some of my parents' friends who were in it um, growing up, mostly on the development side um, and some on the investment management side. And, you know, I was really um, never didn't want to get into it my whole life. I was a finance major in college and I knew I wanted to get into kind of real estate or finance, but there's nothing about commercial real estate that was in my blood since I was two, yeah. um, you know, but, but I thought as I got into it, it was a good avenue to, you know, start meeting things and kind of, you know, I do it for a few years, kind of see how it went and then maybe springboard it to something else. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I kind of liked it. And, you know, I think it for the most part is I find um, the people to be, um, you know, my kind of people, more entrepreneurial, um, you know, not very corporate, um, not necessarily so politically correct. And, uh, you know, it's just an interesting group, interesting people, made a lot of friends throughout the years. And, you know, it, it does have a lot of upside opportunities if you're willing to work hard. And yeah, look, it's, it's difficult to figure out where to start. And I always tell people, look, you know, I started as an analyst for a big public read <laughs> um, and um, kind of springboard that on, that on down to, again, what I just talked about before, running this at t portfolio to start my own company. And, you know, there's a lot of directions you can go with it. So, again, for everyone who thinks they want to get into it and isn't sure, you know, the key is just to get into it. Um, you don't have to make a decision day one, whether you want to be in property management, development, asset management, brokerage, et cetera. You know, just kind of get into it. Look for grooves. Look for missed opportunities. Um, you know, find some people that you like working with and a company that you like and, and, you know, move it from there. It's very hard. People make these long-term plans at 21 and 22, which is laughable because um, things will change many times as they <laughs> – get older. So the key is, again, just to get in. Yeah, just just get started. I mean, it, you know, we it, it doesn't matter where where you get that start, right? Because I've seen developers that started off as accountants, um, or architects or engineers, or, you know, maybe they just had nothing to do with commercial real estate at all. They just happened to buy a couple of properties, and then they fell into it. It doesn't matter what your background is. You can be successful in this industry, which is which is pretty exciting. So, how did you go from managing that that AT and T portfolio to to starting your own company? I mean, that's a pretty big leap. So, um, not as much as it seems. So, okay. when I had that portfolio, we had a group of investors who wanted to buy all these properties from us, and the group of investors was probably forty to one, forty number that wanted to buy these properties versus one asset that I had for sale. So, I said, hold on a minute here there's a big interest and there's a database of people that I have relationships with, um, you know, that I could probably do this with day one. So why don't I take this client list and my relationship with AT&T and, you know, try to do it on my own, a little bit entrepreneurial kind of, I understood, you know, the ins and outs of it. So I, you know, for my first few deals, I understood where the AT&T transactions were and who were the relative buyers. So I kind of walked in why naive to start at 26, I wasn't completely naive that I had, a, I had a client base and an idea of kind of how to start it and where it would go from there. And that, you know, AT&T, you know, garages wouldn't be a very sexy product to continue with. But I took it, ran a, a few years with it, and you know, was able to do a lot of transactions. And, you know, that springboarded me into, 
you know, a lot of the AT&T landlords, they built the properties in the 50s and this was the 90s. So these guys were all close to retirement. They're like, look, I'd like to sell it to you, but you have to give me somewhere to go. And so that's where I kind of figured out, look, we should be buying a Walmart or a Walgreens, <laughs> uh, you know, a CVS and of those nature. So that kind of got me into that. And, you know, luckily, if you do the right things, one thing leads to another. And, you know, over time, you kind of build a business and a book of business. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much grown ever since only two down years, which was 2008 during the financial crisis. Um, and two quarters last year with the start of COVID. Um, outside of that, you know, it, it's pretty much been um, you no know, wax, luckily. Yeah, I bet you. Uh, I bet you might have made up for it at the end of last year too. At those two lost quarters, it's it's amazing how much the the velocity just picked up after June. Uh, is kind of what we saw. We actually uh, the first single tenant net investment deal we did was in AT and T in Chattanooga. It was their uh, their operations facility. <laughs> so small yeah, world. There you go. Um, you know they, they had thousands of facilities across the U.S. So yeah, the Midwest group of it, but a big market. And yeah, look, the second quarter of last year, in the middle of COVID, we thought last year was going to be a write-off. We were thinking down 25, 30%, and end of the year down like 8%, which we thought was a huge victory because the yeah. fourth quarter came back roaring. So, um, and this year's come back even better. So, um, you know, knock on wood, it's, you know, and, and it did what it did during those times, exactly what it's supposed to do, which is despite the crisis and despite a pandemic, in spite of everyone being at home, you know, these tenants paid their rent no one really noticed for the most part that if you didn't know what was going on in the world, you didn't notice from a cash flow perspective that things had changed. You know, all the tenants paid their rents. You know, a few of the weaker, you know, casual dining chains or maybe gyms had some de- rent deferments <laughs> um, in exchange for concessions. And some people made those. But for the most part, um, you know, net lease payments um, last year held out pretty strong. So good to see. Yeah, they did really well. And, and with debt as cheap as it is now, I mean, it's, it's, you know, they're such attractive investments. So will you take us back, you know, kind of from the beginning, maybe from the beginning, what is so attractive about triple net investments? Um, well, again, it depends on who you are. I mean, look, net lease investments are the bond market to the rest of real estate, which I call the stock market. Meaning if you're looking for multifamily, if you're looking for value add, if you're looking for land speculation, if you're looking for opportunistic returns, this most likely isn't the place. <laughs> so, you know, there's that part of commercial real estate, you know, land speculation obviously is on the <laughs> on the higher risk, <laughs> higher reward spectrum, right? Um, but the net lease, the beauty of net lease is, again, it's passive for the most part. It's a single tenant, it's a long-term lease, it's triple net for the most part, which is no landlord responsibilities. And a lot of the tenants are investment grade. So, you know, you, you buy a new 20 year called Chick-fil-A, <laughs> um, you know, there's nothing to do for 20 years you're just going to sit back and collect a rent check. So you can sit here and depreciate it. You, you earn, you know, you earn the rent over time. And, you know, a lot of people get into it, you know, in their later years when they're moving away from their active management and their property management company, et cetera, and they head towards retirement, you know, so long as the 1031 exists, which is still a open question for this year, but we'll get back to that in a different sector. Yeah. Um, you know, they, it's a great vehicle to, you know, take your assets from active management to passive management. And, and just collect cash flow. So, it, you know, it's a boring, stable product that does what it's, exactly what it's supposed to do. A stable fixed return, you know, month in, month out. That's the, that's the attractiveness of it. 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's consistent returns. That's what I hear everybody say. It's consistent. Every month I can count on that check coming in. I don't have to worry about it. Do you see that often uh, happening quite often when you've got investors who are selling maybe a value add project that they did or something they've sat on for a while, they 1031 exchange it into these triple net investments? Yeah, a lot of people are trying to take money off the table or trying to lower their active management um, of a property. So again, we deal with a lot of multifamily owners, you know, obviously pricing through the roof today. And uh, it's crazy. Take some, take some money off the table without paying tax. And some people use it as a parking lot as well, which is, look, I'm, I want to trade. I don't want to pay the tax, but I may not want to stay in this forever. You know, it's a pretty liquid sector, meaning, you know, Walgreens to get in and out of it in, in a few years isn't um, like selling an apartment building over and over again. You have to be at the right occupancy and the right tenant improvements have to be made, et cetera. You know, these are more liquid and more tradable. So, you know, people sometimes use it as a, as a stopgap. I'm going to buy net lease, get some cash flow for a few years and wait for a different cycle of the market or a different stage of my career to go back on the opportunistic return side. Love that. For those of y'all that are joining us live here on YouTube, if you have any questions for Randy, go ahead and drop them in the live chat. I'll be sure to ask him as that is appropriate. Randy, what about for your younger investors? Do you see the younger investors who are trying to build a portfolio going after these types of investments? Um, you do see it again in the, in the smaller range, you start to see them go after it. You know, again, I think it's a um, usually they start with, you know, typically maybe a friend or two, <laughs> um, and it's a small little partnership. You, know, you put it together and, you know, you build one and their goal is to buy, you know, one property a year, one property every two years. And, you know, people who are, if you're 30 years old and you, you keep on track for 30 years, you have a 15 or 20 property portfolio that you really should give you, you know, fairly substantial income, um, over time. Yes. It takes some discipline and yes, you have to have, you know, a good current income that you're not spending to, to do it, but Again, even if you don't have a 15 property portfolio, even if it's a four property portfolio, again, it really, you know, it just kind of builds up your income stream over time. Your regular income kind of is on one side, your net lease portfolio is on the other, and you've built up this fixed income or base every year of income that you're getting. So it's a really good, stable investment, especially for first time investors, because there's really, again, unless you buy a short term lease or a risky tenant, there's really not that much you can do wrong. <laughs> um, you know, if you stay on the on the safer side of it, investment grade side of it, um, you know, your tenant can leave eventually, but, you know, they'll take a few years to play out and you'll be able to reposition or um, hopefully get some good advice along the way. You brought in a good market and looked at rent to market and other things that, you know, you can reposition the asset worst case scenario that they don't renew. And, you know, these tenants renew in the upper 80 percentile range. So, right. um, you know, more often than not, it works out. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Uh, is is Chick-fil-A really ever going to move? I mean, it's they they'll they'll consider it maybe, but I mean the the effort that they have to go through, they have to retrain their customers as to where they are. They have to build, you know, it's it's usually not worth it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the renewal rates have got to be incredibly high. Yeah, I mean, look, why Chick Fil A is new and doesn't have the track record, McDonald's certainly does. And you know, I've seen very few McDonald's in my life that have ever closed or moved. Um, you know, they just rebranded and, and you know, obviously redone the store. But, you know, McDonald's obviously makes pretty good real estate decisions as well. But yeah. that's a good example of someone that's gone full cycle, meaning the 30 to 50 years. And, you know, I, don't, I have yet to meet a McDonald's owner that, um, you know, didn't do pretty well. Yeah, they're, they're doing really well. We've got our first question here from Kilowatt. Uh, he's saying, I'd love to hear Mr. Blankstein's thoughts on triple net properties with marijuana dispensaries as tenants. It's an interesting um, concept. And if you're a speculative investor, you know, it's probably worth a flyer to some extent. 
you know, the issue is obviously it's not um, legalized on a federal basis. So you can't get a loan on the property from a traditional lender. You know, banks aren't allowed to lend on it. So because of that, um, you know, you have to go to secondary type financing sources or pay all cash, um, you know, is one thing. And B, obviously, the track records aren't there, meaning no one understands that this space is going to be consolidated to like three or four players or there's going to be 50 to 100 that, that end up sustainable. So, you know, there's a lot more risk in that regard. Clearly, you know, marijuana, CBD is, is growing and will continue to go so. But you have regulatory risk. You have obviously banking issues and you have brand issues as to, you know, who are the market leaders and who's not right now. You know, there aren't large public companies that are in the space. So I, I think it's an interesting, interesting one to watch. I think it's just, you know, obviously tread cautiously. Um, and again, I think the, the all cash part makes it tough. Most of these deals are in the three to five million range. They can't be financed. So, you know, they're trading, you know, nine and 10 caps. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's a great cash flow. But again, you know, there's there's obviously adjust a risk to go with it. So I think it's worth watching closely. And, you know, if you find the right opportunity or, you know, the residual real estate or, you know, the operator well, um, you know, maybe it's worth a flyer. Certainly an interesting category. I would love for it to be um, more mainstream where there was financing available to it because I think the market would explode. Yeah, so kilowatt every every Wednesday on this channel, we actually underwrite uh, some sort of net investment that we find across the country. A, a, two or three weeks ago, we underwrote one that actually had a marijuana dispensary. If you want to go watch that video, we go into detail on that. Um, I think that we found a group out of California that does like 50% loans um, on them. And now they're at like 9% interest. I mean, it is a, you know, they're, they're really uh, taking their pound of flash. Um, so, you know, it, and that's because it's not legal on a federal level, but I think that they're really interesting opportunities. You've, you've got to get over the fact that, uh, it is still technically illegal federally and, you know, financing is going to be tricky. Uh, but the lease that we looked at was pretty attractive. I mean, it had 3% annual increases for 10 years and it was starting at a nine cap or an eight cap, something really high. Um, so, you know, as far as like triple net investments go, I mean, I would imagine, you know, look, compared to a McDonald's, far riskier, but compared to maybe a value add office building, I don't know if it's riskier than that. So, I mean, where would you kind of throw that on the spectrum of, of risk? Um, well, look, there is financing available because there's funds both on the equity and debt side mm -hmm. that will do it. Again, you know, at 9%, at 9%, it's almost equity <laughs> Yeah, uh, to, some, to some extent, um, but it can be done. Um, you know, look, it's, it's, it's one of the riskier net lease plays you can make at the moment, but you know, you could argue, make the argument that, look, if it gets legalized nationally and there's, there's funding for it, it's going to, these things are going to be six and seven cap deals. Ultimately, likewise, if it goes the other way, um, <laughs> it could lose a lot of value. <laughs> that, that's a different story, but look, I, I think they have a good, um, you know, as, as new an industry as it is, there's clearly a market that's been established for it already, despite being illegal. So there's a user base. Um, you know, the question is what a competitive environment look like um, and, you know, what the local policy is going to be regarding regulation and things of that nature. But um, again, I think it's good for a sophisticated investor, someone who's got a larger portfolio. I think it works in the mix. If I only have one property to buy, this is not the one to start with. Yeah, I would agree. It's, it'll, it'll definitely be higher on the risks, risk side. Um, well, so that's actually a, a very good transition into the next point is, you know, there's all different types of net lease tenants, right? You've got 
auto shops, you've got QSR, you've got retail. I mean, what what are you finding investors are more attracted to and why is that? Well, I mean, the last year, everyone went to flight to quality and went for essential tenants. So everybody wanted a drugstore and a grocery store. So again, if you were Walmart, Target, Costco, Walgreens, CVS, Home Depot, Lowe's, you know, you were in huge demand. Um, that was because of the pandemic and everyone, you know, got real conservative really fast. Um, and now that people are going back to a more normalized environment, you know, people are starting to look at casual dining. They're starting to look at fitness again. Um, they're looking at gas stations like 7-Eleven, um, you know, auto parts, banks, the usual suspects. And, you know, there's a lot of new entrants in the net lease space. You're going to see, and we're starting to see the start of it, a lot of mall-based tenants who are, you know, leaving the mall, going to start exploring building freestanding locations. You see companies like Sephora, The Gap, Bath & Body Works, um, Apple, Lululemon, you know, all kind of looking at freestanding models moving forward. So, you know, I, I think those are all attractive tenants and anyone who's good enough to leave them all and has their own customer base and can build a standalone. Um, you know, those are all interesting concepts, you know, concepts which are troubled at the moment is still big box because the problem remains even even under viable concepts like Best Buy is what is the correct prototype or floor plate moving forward. And that's still a work in progress. I mean, everyone's convinced, obviously, that omni-channels the, the right strategy and some of the you know hybrid retail online but no one understands exactly what footprint that means <laughs> and does it need a drive-through does it need curbside um and even some of the restaurants have, have some questionable comments like you know if you're casual dining now do you need a drive-through if not for the customers for all your third-party pickup apps from doordash to uber eats so again you know floor put risk is the major risk at the moment more so than individual tenants yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are you seeing investors flocking more towards states like Texas, Tennessee, Florida that have no state income tax uh, and towards the southeast? There seems to be a trend moving towards that side of the country. Or does it matter when it comes to triple net leases since the tenants are ultimately responsible for paying those expenses? Well, it does matter. I mean, look, everybody wants to buy in a market they think is, you know, has demographic growth and has positive business fundamentals because ultimately you know, when you sell it, you're going to sell it into a different environment. And right. obviously places, places that have demographic growth also usually have rent growth um, and other things. So residually, you're better off with your piece of dirt or building, um, even if it's way down the road. So they do think about that, even though, again, you're probably going to get your full 20 year lease and the renewals to go with it. But in the event you don't, you still have to prepare for the downside scenario. And so certainly places with our tax free and our population growth or better business environments. Um, are more popular. Yeah, the Southeast, clearly, you know, Texas and Florida, um, everyone starts looking there and then they realize, yep. hold on a minute. A lot of the premiums are already priced in. So, you know, there's not necessarily a big discount. I mean, look, everyone already understands that Florida is tax free and they understand that they've done really well in the last few years. Um, and they always pay, they already see the demographics. So it's not like people are asleep at, the, asleep at the switch. They were a few years ago, but they aren't today. So these places are trading at pretty big premiums. So again, it brings them to not not that Nashville is a secondary market, but secondary growth markets like right. Nashville, Nashville, Raleigh, and other places that are outside of Texas and Florida, um, you know, are really growing as well. And I think people are really staring much harder at them. Um, and you know, um, you know, clearly those markets are still taking market share away from, you know, the New York, Chicago, and LA. There are other places that have, um, you know, worse demographic growth. Right. It's, it's really interesting to watch. I mean, you know, of course, the beauty of single tenant net leases 
is that you can invest anywhere across the country. You don't even have to go see the property, really. I mean, we've had plenty of clients purchase in Texas and Chattanooga and all over that they've never even seen the property. We've never seen the property. It's kind of, again, the beauty of it. But, you know, COVID really expedited the globalization of those out-of-market purchases. I feel like a lot of those investors that might have bought a multifamily property in LA at a two or a three cap are now exploring other options outside of the market. Are you starting to see that as well? Yeah, again, I think that people thought, you know, I mean, growth markets of five years ago was San Francisco. <laughs> um, yeah. And clearly, that completely has reversed. And people are, are, you know, more cognizant of the risk involved in some of these major market cities that have potentially going the wrong way demographically or just from a business perspective. Um, and people want to be on the right side of that trade. So, you know, it, it's certainly on everyone's mind. It's not, you know, I'm here in Chicago and people certainly understand the challenges in front of us. Um, and it's certainly easier to go to somewhere that where, you know, things look a lot rosier um, from a variety of perspectives. Right. We've got another question from Aziz. I saw a pet vet where the lease is up in one year. It's a single tenant net lease with a decent amount of VPD. I'm not sure what VPD is. I was thinking of purchasing with potential build out if the tenant doesn't renew. What is your opinion? Um, VPD is vehicles per day. Oh, okay. Um, you know, we use, look, we use cars per day. <laughs> that makes sense. Use vehicles, but yes. Um, Look, one-year leases, I'm very concerned that the landlord or tenant knows something that you don't. You know, yeah. you won't really sell a one-year lease unless you've talked to the tenant and you couldn't get an early extension, or you'd wait a year to see what they're going to do. So again, you know, anything kind of under three years, you really have to have a deep dive and either love the real estate or, you know, be very comfortable with the tenant and their position. You know, you won't really sell an asset for one or two years. You either wait the one or two years or you talk to the tenant and get an early extension. To sell one in two years is is um, worth a lot of further investigation. Do you think there's any value in the lease at that point, or do you think it's just a price per square foot of the building price, uh, purchase price? Well, if you knew kind of the store sales, <laughs> um, you know what what the vet was doing and kind of what the client base was, and you understand, you know, obviously the residual real estate is a huge component at that stage. Um, so I wouldn't say it has no value, but I think you really need to dig into the residual story strongly and understand the current business strongly as well. Um, you know, I'd only buy a one or two year deal if I was very comfortable with the residual value of the real estate with or without the lease. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of store sales, how do you vet these tenants and, and underwrite them? Because at the end of the day, like you said, this is kind of like the bond market. I mean, you are buying the lease and the tenant that is going to be paying that. It's not necessarily about, you know, the real estate as it is if you're buying something vacant. So how do you how do you properly underwrite and vet what you're getting into? Um, I mean, look, some some tenants report sales. A lot of the QSR and casual dining report, Walgreens reports, um, you know, CVS doesn't report. Um, so a lot of tenants reporting, you can get it. But again, I think in due diligence, I think you need to you know, kind of go there, even though you don't have to go there on longer term leases, on shorter or medium term leases where your lease renewal is kind of a, a major component decision, right? With 20 years to go, no one knows what's happening in 20 years. That's so it's a waste of time to go because you're asking somebody a fortune teller um, <laughs> of what the market's going to look like in, you know, right. 2040, nobody knows. But five years from now, people can understand, look, we're at a, we're at a location where we have, we don't have a drive-through flag, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're mid-block and we want to be on the end. You know, our rent's pretty high compared to market and our sales are mediocre. You know, that's a different story. And I think you can, 
you know, a lot of people talk to the general manager, people go outside, people look at the traffic counts and the, and the growth of the traffic and the growth of the area. And, you know, look at a competitive landscape of, of where you're going to be. And sometimes, you know, sometimes your tenants like Walgreens bought a, or some Rite Aids and they're next to each other, or, you know, this is with TD and Charles Schwab. And you can understand that, look, there's two leases, which one's coming to you first, which one's paying for which, and which one's newer and kind of understand your renewal probability. So you can, you can dig in to a large extent is to understand how the tenant is doing at that location. So when when a when a potential investor calls the Boulder Group looking to get started in triple net investments, how do you walk them through that process? What do they need to know? Well, first we really try to understand their kind of risk profile. I mean, look, a lot of people always want, you know, higher yielding, they want everything going in. And then you really need to figure out where they need to compromise. Meaning, you know, are they really a four cap buyer and they want to take zero risk and buy it? A 20 year brand new <laughs> A, or, you know, are they going to buy, you know, a cannabis facility at a nine cap all cash? There's a huge, huge differences between those two types of buyers and kind of everyone in between an experience level. You know, um, we deal with a lot of experienced investors only because they're existing clients who we've known over the years. Um, not that we don't have new ones, but they tend to be on the smaller side and, you know, you develop relationships kind of over time. But, you really kind of move people into the most, I try to move the new people into the most conservative aspects I can find of them. Meaning I'd rather have them pay the low cap rates, buy a long-term, buy investment grade, buy in a major metro, you know, kind of really safe because I, I wanted them to have a good experience day one, even if they're a little bit more conservative than they need to be. Because if they do that, they see the returns and they, as they grow more sophisticated over time, they can always sell if they decide that's not the asset for them. Because I picked up, you know, something with a super long lease and a tenant that's probably in demand as well. So I think that's a good place to get started. Um, a lot of people want to start much more higher on the risk yield. And I try to talk them out of it only because do that for your property three, four, and five, <laughs> when you have a little bit more experience and you have a little bit more money so that if you make a mistake, it's not as you know detrimental to your near or midterm prospects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? It's, it's kind of build a little bit of a base first and then let's start taking risks on the subsequent deals. Uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. How many how many transactions did y'all do last year? One hundred and seventy two. That's um, pretty amazing. Which was fifth in the nation, ranked by CoStar for investment sales. Uh, you know, it was a like I said, even in, in a down year slightly, um, we've managed to do a lot of volume, and you know, certain things um, kind of just come in bunches. Meaning, you know, we were selling a Dollar General for for a person, we sold one of them. And then he's like, you know what? I want to sell my other five as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so the other five, I actually knew a person that's looking to build a portfolio of Dollar Generals. And, you know, one thing led to another and it just kind of quickly happened. And boom, there were six deals with a guy that only owned six properties. Um, wow. So, you know, I think cap rates going down really for like, you know, 10 years in a row really helps that everybody historically has a profit. And a lot of people look at this as a window of opportunity, depending on your view of interest rates to a large extent, that, you know, there's a lot of gains to be locked in. And, you know, people look at the long term, some of these markets, dollar generals are traded in the, you know, eight to nine and a half range. And today they're trading in the upper fives to low sixes and, you know, think it's time to take money off of the table. Um, again, I, I've had people tell me interest rates are going to go up for the last 10 years in a row and they've been wrong. So, you know, I don't put as much faith in anyone's analysis right now. But, um, you know, I think inflation will come. I don't know if it's coming next month or five years from now. But uh, if you look at historically, 
we're pretty low on the interest rate chart. So I think it's something that people should at least pay attention to regardless of their view. Yep. Absolutely. Well, just out of my own curiosity, I mean, 172 transactions, that's more than three sales a week. How many people do you have on your team helping you <laughs> conduct all of these? Six. Six people. It's a good business model. Um, it's a really good, yeah. It's a good business <laughs> model. Um, people forget that it took me 25 plus years in the business to get here. Um, right. People discount that a long time, but look, if you're in a business for 25 years, you should have a pretty big client base built up. <laughs> and a lot of those should be repeated and should be fairly easy to replicate transactions. And again, it hasn't hurt that the market's been on our side as well. Um, but again, you know, we're, we're, we're a reputation based business. And so if you keep doing the right thing, you know, again, I'm in my fifties now, so I've had a lot of time to build up a client base and, you know, too many people look for instant results or, you know, thinking, you know, why am I, you know, year one, I, um, I think I did two deals. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've come a long way, but people forget it. It, it. it didn't happen over two years or five years, even, or 10. It really happened over 20. And, you know, some of it's luck, some of it's skill. And then, you know, we've done the right things a lot of times. Sometimes it costs us a lot of short-term money. Um, but doing the right thing and building your reputation is, uh, it does pay off over time. And a lot of today's generation, people, you and younger than you, um, you know, don't understand the patience that it takes and yeah. some of the sacrifices that it takes to do so. Um, but there are no shortcuts. At least I haven't been able to find it and I'm doing okay. And I still can't find the shortcut. Yeah. I, I tell our newer guys that all the time. It's, you know, so I was having a conversation with one of our, our younger brokers today and he really started working probably eight or 12 months ago, uh, really like as a broker. And he's just now starting to get to a point where he's building up momentum to where he's getting leads and he's getting deals done and it's, and it's starting to, to really gain some speed. And, and we were having that discussion. In my opinion, you have to be in, real, in commercial real estate for five to seven years before you even really start doing and reaping the benefits of what you did the years before. Like residential, I, I feel that you can come out and you can make a million, you can sell a million dollars uh, in GCI your first year. It, just because of the nature of the business, I feel like that's really tough in commercial real estate. But there's this there's this tilting point where after that five or seven years, you build up enough relationships, you build up a good enough reputation, and this goes for investors as well. You don't have to be a broker, right? I mean, it's it's if you have a good enough a, a reputation in your market as an investor, people will call you to sell you deals because they know that you do the right thing, and it makes such a big difference. We've got uh, we've got another question coming in from Patrick Foster. With the current market, would you suggest investing in triple net as a new investor looking to get into the commercial side of real estate? Um, yeah, but again, um, more selectively and understanding kind of what the returns are today, which is you know they're fairly low. Um, but again, I think it's I think net lease and real estate in general belong in everyone's portfolio. The question is what's the right amount, and certainly. Um, you know, there was a time 15 years ago when I used to um, think that people should be much more invested. But then it's like, hold on a minute. You know, if your day job is commercial real estate and you put all everything in commercial real estate, you know, like 2007, and eight, we've learned, which was a financing led problem more than a tenant led problem. Um, you may be over concentrated in things. So, again, I think everyone should get into net lease. The question is, you know, it's a good time to get in. Is it a good time to go all in? Absolutely not. <laughs> You want to get in a little bit over time so that a 
you can't be wrong because <laughs> you kind of built it over a course of a few years. And B, you don't want to be in any one market cycle just in case it was a, it was a side of the market that may not have been sustainable for long. Um, so that's what I've learned over time is to you know not go all in too quick. Just I want to build a portfolio today, you know, build it over time, as as painful as it may be, because you know markets change on a dime. You never know what the causation event is to change that. Yeah, I think it's. I agree with that. I think it's very important to curate your portfolio, even if it's just even if it's just commercial real estate. You can't have. 100% single tenant net lease opportunities, in my opinion. I mean, we we didn't even start looking. Do what? Yeah, too conservative. Exactly. Too conservative. You've got to yeah. have you've got to have a little bit of the you know the the risky stuff that could get you higher returns. I mean, so my you know I really cut my teeth in development and heavy value add, which is about as risky as you can get in the business. And now that we've got a number of those, I mean, we've got I think 57 million dollars in development going right now. Like you know what? Let's start buying some single tenant net lease opportunities because that is suddenly starting to sound very attractive to me, considering how much risk we have going on over here, and and some of my investors are the are the exact same way. And I think, you know, even if you're just going to invest in commercial real estate, you still need to to diversify. Whether that's you know you buy an office building, you buy a retail building, you buy a single tenant net lease, you invest in a development, you do some value. I mean, there's any number of ways that you can diversify. Just diversify. I would agree. Um, I think the biggest mistake people make, um, at least the last generation, is very concentrated in individual markets. You know, they say, well, I know this market. I grew up in this market. You know, I, I know every corner. I know everything. That's great and all. <laughs> but if that market, you know, goes sideways or south, then you've taken your whole portfolio down with you through no mistake of your own. And, you know, that's what I see a big issue with um, a lot of people. Yeah, we're looking at that now. I mean, I'm from Nashville. We've always done investments and developments and brokerage in Nashville. And even though Nashville is booming, it's okay, well, what happens if tourism goes away tomorrow? Right? Like Nashville would slow down very, very fast. And now we're overexposed in a market that's not really growing as fast anymore. So, you know, we, that's why we just bought a building in Chattanooga. We're looking in Huntsville and Louisville and, you know, Atlanta, some of the surrounding areas just to kind of diversify and spread that out. I think, I think it's, it's just a, it's a must. You've got to at least consider it, right? Especially now with technology, it's much easier to manage these properties from afar uh, than it used to be. With cap rate compression as it's been over the last few years, what do you see happening over the next five in terms of cap rates, interest rates, and, and that whole market? I don't think interest rates are going you know, dramatically higher, but I think they probably will go slightly higher. I mean, at the end of the day, we're borrowing more money as a, as a government, as a country, and you, know, you can't borrow more and more money and the rate continue to go down. It can happen for a while and maybe even longer than you anticipate. But there is a day of reckoning because ultimately people don't want to lend to someone who's not very physically responsible. So, you know, ultimately I think rates have to go up. Again, I've been wrong too many times in the short term, so I wouldn't make a bet on that this year or next year. But if I had to make a five or 10 year bet, I think it's pretty safe to say interest rates would be higher than today. Um, you know, regarding cap rates, obviously they follow interest rates to some extent. Um, you know, but net lease I think has been institutionalized to a large extent where, you know, they still don't, it's still not to the point where institutions control more than 25% of the bread and butter type product. They may control a better share of 
$25 million plus office buildings leads to, you know, Facebook and Microsoft and things of that nature, but they're not $3 million, you know, advanced auto properties. They don't control a big share of it. You know, private owners and 1031 guys have 65, 70% of the market. So until institutions have, you know, more than half of the market, that's always a room for growth. And I think people are still chasing yield for no other reason than there's a gigantic sector of the population that is, you know, aging near retirement, that's undersaved. And, you know, a treasury bond at 1.6 isn't going to get them to the lifestyle that they envision for their retirement. So as long as net lease has a yield that looks, you know, you can double it versus a, a treasury portfolio, certainly riskier, but I don't think it's twice as risky. Um, you know, people will continue to put money into the sector for yield. Um, and the, you know, baby boom generation is not saved to retirement like they thought they would. So, um, you know, this, this global search for yield will benefit net lease, at least for a few more years. Yeah, everybody is seeking that. I mean, it's because it's, you can't really find it anymore in multifamily, right? I mean, the guys used to do multifamily because they would find these value-add projects. They'd squeeze a little bit of juice out of the orange, and then they would toss it to the next guy, and he would do the same thing. And you can't – there's only so many times you can renovate a property until it's like, okay, well, we've got to wait 10 years before the property to run down so that we can value-add it. Um, so I think you're I think you're right. Single-tenant net leases are going to benefit from that pretty significantly. Earlier, we mentioned inflation, right, with the government putting all of this money uh, into the market. How do you see inflation impacting commercial real estate investments and, you know, obviously specifically net leases? Well, um, you know, look, obviously it has a negative long-term <laughs> for long-term net leases, which is a big share of the market, because if inflation goes, you want a short-term lease, which is a hotel. So every single night you can change your rates to adjust to the inflation. So you, you want something with no lease, basically, um, like a hotel and that side of the commercial real estate obviously does well. Shorter term leases and things you can adjust, <laughs> you know, things that have CPI adjustments versus fixed fixed increases. So again, there's a huge percentage of commercial real estate that will benefit. Net lease isn't necessarily one of them um, as, as rates go up, you know, kind of inversely correlated. Um, you know, they're not 100% correlated, but there's definitely a correlation. So, um, you know, won't be positive for the net lease sector. Um, you know, that being said, you know, you usually put the financing on and hopefully you do it long term the day you buy it. So it shouldn't impact you in the short term. You know, you buy a 20 year lease, you put 10 year financing on it. Your inflation is going to impact you till you're 11. Um, so while it may have some impact on you, hopefully you didn't lie or float everything and, you yeah. know, get squeezed with a bunch of short term financing. So again, as long as people understand it's a long term asset and they should put long term financing on it, I think it'll be fine. It's people that do the opposite that you know, are going to take the brunt of the lost cash flow. Yeah, that, that's a, in my opinion, that's one side of single tenant net leases that isn't necessarily neglected, but I don't think as much thought is put into that is the debt side. I mean, the, the deals are as good and strong as the debt is that you're able to get on the property, right? Because really, at the end of the day, you're trying to take a spread and capitalize on that. So, I mean, if your debt starts to go up because of LIBOR, I mean, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you shouldn't be using short-term financing on a long-term asset unless you plan on flipping it or or doing something in the very short term. Um, you know, you're buying in this environment. You might as well take advantage of the historically great financing <laughs> to match your capital <laughs> so that you lock, you're, lock, you're locking in a cash flow number and hopefully you're locking it in for 10 years. That's the whole goal. So as long as you do that, the inflation is as big a concern. It's people that get caught in the middle or think they're smarter or can time the market. You know, that's people putting themselves at more risk than they believe they are. 
we've started hearing rumbles uh, from investors that, well, not even rumbles. I mean, they are they are actually worried that the 1031 exchange is going to go away, the capital gains is going to go up. What's your opinion on that? And like, do you, I mean, do you think either of those are going to happen? And if it does, how would that impact commercial real estate investing in general? So this is where I can be the old wise man and say, for 25 years, I've heard the 1031 exchange is going away and it's always under attack. And the cynic in me says it's under attack because they know they can fundraise off of it and then stop a bill which wasn't going to get passed anyway. Um, that being said, this is the most serious you know, attempt at 1031, but most serious is hard to define what that means, meaning Biden is mentioned in his plan and Biden is mentioned in the State of the Union, but there is no bill on the table that's being discussed that is being pushed through Congress at the moment. So you know, why Joe Biden may want it and this administration may want it, it has a long way to go until it becomes law. And you know, assuming even if it gets through, there's a lot of compromises to be done along the way. And even, again, it won't get eliminated. What the plan is to take anything above $500,000 gain and make that taxable. But even if they did that, and if they did it tomorrow, it would certainly be the rule of the land for the next three years. But if there was a different administration, there's nothing stopping them from taking that $500,000 cap and moving it back to $20 million. I mean, so unless they eliminate it, then to reintroduce it is much more difficult. But right now, they're talking about modifying it, and the modifications can be undone if it gets passed. There's still a lot of you know open questions whether it can or not, and I urge people to take action and contact their congressmen to stop it from happening. And if you go to a website called, um, I think it's 1031taxreform.org, um, but if you type in 1031 Take Action, uh, Federation of Exchange Accommodators, you'll get to the page, and there's a button to, uh, to do is click and it asks you your address and you click your congressman. Um, and if you look, there's a big Ernst Young study that was published about two weeks ago because there's pretty much every real estate group in the country is on board with preserving the 1031 exchange. Um, and the findings were, and I made notes here so I didn't misstate them, you know, the 1031 exchanges support directly and indirectly 568,000 jobs and represent 27.5 billion of labor wages in the country every single year. That 1031 exchanges generate 55.3 billion in value added um, to the GDP. That 7.8 billion of federal, state, and local tax revenues generated as a result of 1031 exchanges. Um, and it reduces the cost of capital and increases investment in the U.S. economy. So I think a lot of people are thinking, um, you know, it, it's another wealthy loophole for real estate investors aren't thinking through the, you know, unintended consequences of it from local tax revenues to all the people that are impacted by it from title companies. And at the end of the day, if it takes real estate values down, you know, real estate is in most people's portfolios, even if it's a pension. <laughs> and the biggest real estate owners and lenders are insurance companies and banks. So if they think it's going to be, you know, just punishing a small little group of people, they're solidly mistaken. Um, even, you know, residential houses will be impacted by this. So I think it's a pretty big, ambitious effort to get done. And do I think there can be some modification around the edges that may happen? Sure. I think elimination, um, you know, is probably not going to happen. Um, and if it does, I think there's some pretty drastic consequences on the negative side. Um, but let's hope we don't get them. There's just some modifications. Yeah, that's the, the I, I share the same thoughts. I think, you know, you look at politicians and let's be honest, at the end of the day, they're going to do what's in their best interests. And a lot of them have made a lot of money off of real estate. And I have a hard time seeing them punish themselves. 
Uh, so, you know, I think it'd be tough to see the 1031 just go away. Yeah, there's there's two, you know, in my experience, I usually look to the bigger lobbying group as to who ultimately prevails in, in, in a lot of these bills. And, you know, the National Association of Realtors, the Real Estate Roundtable, NAOP, ULI, I mean, pretty much every real estate organization is, is looking to save the 1031 exchange. So there's going to be a lot of pushback and pushback at a high level on, on this effort. Um, you know, the, the, the worry is they do a gigantic sweeping bill and this just gets caught up in it without the individual merits. I think if they go after it just individually, I think they'll be stopped at every turn. But I think if it gets swiped up in a larger bill, you know, there's some chance it can go through. I'd never say zero. So, you know, the good thing is to be move ourselves away from kind of carried interest and stepped up basis and kind of in this catch-all real estate general tax bill, um, you know, would be better for us. So, you know, I also think that they have, they have to pass it in the next few months because once they get to January, it's an election year and it'll never pass. So, you know, the next few months is kind of the danger zone. I urge everyone again to go take some action and contact their congressman and tell them, you know, you don't support this. Yeah, I I definitely second that. It is very important that we get that done. Uh, Randy, this was a great discussion on single tenant net leases. I appreciate you coming on the show. If any of the listeners or the viewers uh, want to, you know, get in touch with you about investing in triple net properties, you know, how can they get a hold of you? What else? Uh, where else can they find you? Um, best way to get me in touch with me is. Um, either LinkedIn or just go to bouldergroup.com, hit the contact us page and my information's right there, not hiding. Easy enough. All right, y'all, if you are listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. It definitely helps us to continue bringing this type of content to you guys. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, definitely like and subscribe. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Tyler.